even think. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We want to continue the series that we began several weeks back on biblical prosperity. And we have adopted a text scripture in Psalm chapter 35, verse 27. It says, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Now, folks, notice the connection between prosperity and righteousness. We know that the righteousness of God was achieved for us by the sacrifice of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, in Isaiah 53, it tells us about that sacrifice and what Jesus paid the price in his own blood for. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. So he paid the price for sin original sin and your individual sins. And he paid the price for physical healing for our bodies. But there where it says the chastisement of our peace was upon him, that word peace, that Hebrew word that's translated peace, is the word shalom. And it means well-being in every area. It's the same word used right here in Psalm 35, 27, translated prosperity. Now I know that biblical prosperity... Or the idea of Amen. Let's start in Matthew chapter 8 tonight. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The greatest hindrance to people receiving healing in their bodies is without a doubt the fact that people are not convinced it's the will of God to heal them. People read the stories of Jesus in his healing ministry. They see the miracles that were performed on somebody else that we have record of in the scripture. But until they become convinced of God's will to heal them, then there there will never be an opportunity for them to reach out in faith and take hold of what belongs to them. Someone once said years ago, and it's a beautifully stated true statement, faith begins where the will of God is known. So unless we come to the place where we understand beyond a shadow of a doubt, convinced beyond all reason that it is the will of God to heal us, then there is never going to be a foundation for us extending our faith toward the Lord, toward God and his healing mercy. Now, in this, along with this subject, knowing the will of God, the greatest thing throughout the church that hinders people from accepting that it is God's will to heal everybody is Paul's thorn in the flesh. So turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is one of those things you have to keep teaching over and over and over every so often because it's so ingrained, false doctrine is so ingrained in much of the church 
that it doesn't come out the first time they hear the, the truth. You just have to keep pounding away, chipping away at the, the doctrine of unbelief that so much of the church world has accepted to be true. Second Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul said, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. All Bible scholars agree that Paul's talking about himself. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. This translation is a little, is pretty weak here because it makes it sound like God wouldn't let him say or tell what he saw. But literally what these words are identifying is that he didn't have human words to describe the, th the things he saw and, and witnessed in heaven. So it's not like God wouldn't let him tell. He didn't have words to describe it. He's the one you remember that said it was far better to depart and be with Christ. I'm sure this experience that he's relating 14 years before this point in time that he writes the letter to the Corinthians, I'm sure that added to the statement that he made about how much better heaven is than earth. Verse 5, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that which he hears of me. In other words, Paul's saying there's a lot of things that I hold back and don't tell about the things that have been revealed to me by the Lord, because I don't want you to think that I'm trying to make myself out to be some great man. Jesus told his disciples on several occasions, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot receive them now. Paul apparently followed that pattern and only shared the things that God instructed him to or impressed upon him to, to share rather than telling everything that he knew. And lest I should be exalted, verse 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now back up to verse 7. Paul is telling about the, the visions and the revelations he had, the things that he saw in heaven, the things that were revealed unto him. And you remember that Paul talked about and wrote to the Galatians that the world would be judged by his gospel. Paul had such confidence in the revelations of the Holy Ghost and such understanding about why God had revealed to him what he did that he was clearly able to say without any sense of egotism or pride in and of himself, but he was very able to say clearly that the revelation that the Holy Ghost has, had brought to him, which primarily is who we are in Christ, 
things pertaining to who we are in Christ and what belongs to us because of Jesus' sacrifice. He said the whole world will be judged by that. Well, if the world's going to be judged by the revelation that Paul revealed to us, then doesn't it make sense for us to study what he revealed so that we're in tune with what God wants us to know? The only reason that these things were revealed to Paul is because God was going to use him and did use him to not only preach the gospel in his lifetime, but save the record of the letters that, that he describes the revelation to the people of that day. And therefore, it becomes a foundation for our faith and our belief. Now, the church, church world, historically, and I don't know how far back this goes, but somewhere along the line, we know that in the beginning days of the first generation of the church, we know that healing and miracles were a big part of the church activity, the operation of the church. We know from the book of Acts that the church in Jerusalem began as a result of healings and miracles and so forth. And it wasn't just a smattering. The things that were done were done in such measure to create a situation where nobody could speak against it. You remember when Peter and John went to the beautiful gate of the temple or went through the beautiful gate of the temple on their way to prayer and they healed the guy that was crippled, the guy that was laid daily at this, this place. And the fact that he was laid daily at this place in the gate, the beautiful gate of the temple, indicates that everybody in town, or people that were used to going that way into the temple at least, knew about this guy. They saw him, they recognized him, they knew who he was. So that when his healing came about, and whatever it was that crippled him was done away with by the power of God, it created such a stir that 5,000 people got saved. And when Peter and John were called before the council and had to answer for preaching in the name of Jesus, there was a big discussion and a big debate about what they were going to do, what the council was going to do to Peter and John. And there was one man that stood up, a rabbi that stood up, and he said, we better leave this thing alone. Because if God's behind it, there's nothing we can do to stop it, and we certainly don't want to be found in a position of fighting against God. He said, if God's not behind it, then it'll fizzle out on its own. And the Bible says specifically that they could not deny that a notable miracle had been done. Well, somewhere along the, the generations of the church, the idea of healing, it never was done away with. There was always a, a thread or a remnant of the church that believed in and operated in healings and miracles. But somewhere along the line, the church, the accepted church body, got away from the power of God, got away from the reality that God wants to display his power and that the power of healing and miracles that's in the name of Jesus should be as used today as it was in the beginning of the church, should be as effective in our day as it was in theirs. But somewhere along the way, People allowed the devil to influence them and twist what Paul was saying about this thorn in the flesh to create the idea or plant the idea that God doesn't want everybody to be healed and that God didn't want Paul to be healed because he didn't want him to be lifted up in pride. 
Well, folks, as we just mentioned a few moments ago, Paul wasn't quick to share everything that he knew. He held back primarily for the reason that he didn't want anybody to think that he was something that he wasn't. And he never claimed to be the source of these revelations. He never claimed that the revelations came because he was something special. He gave all the glory to God from the beginning to the end. But the church has twisted this Paul's thorn in the flesh thing to come up with the idea that Paul was sick and he was sick for a long time and God would not heal him because he was trying to keep him humble. So let's take apart what this thing says and let's see if we can identify what Paul's in the flesh, thorn in the flesh really was. Notice again in verse 7 it says, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to buffet me. The thorn in the flesh. Now Paul had the, and, and he identifies this very clearly, both in the book of Acts and in the letters that he wrote to the churches. Paul's training, Paul's education, was the greatest you could possibly have. And I don't mean scholastic education so much, but he had the same training that the high priest did. He couldn't be a high priest. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, not the tribe of Levi. And the Levites populated the priesthood in and of themselves. But he underwent and experienced the same kind of training that the high priest would themselves. He was as knowledgeable in the word of God or concerning the word of God, meaning the law of Moses, the law and the prophets. He was as knowledgeable as the high priest was about any of those things. And one of the things that the high priest or the priesthood, those that would fill the priesthood, one of the things that was required of them was to memorize the law and the prophets. Now think about having to memorize the Old Testament. That seems impossible to me. But that's the kind of training that Paul had. Now as such, when Paul uses phrases, certain phrases, because he's memorized the Old Testament, he knows whether or not the phrases he uses have been used before. And if they have been used before, he knows what the context was or the meaning behind the phrases that he uses. Thorn in the flesh is one of those phrases. Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33, God is speaking to his people. I'm just, for the sake of time, I'm going to pull some verses out of context here. But God is speaking to his people, Numbers chapter 33 and verse 55. It says, but if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, talking about the inhabitants of the promised land, if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Now Paul knows this verse of scripture is there. And it's probably the very thing that causes him to use the phrase or a similar phrase over in the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Paul said, lest I should be exalted above measure that was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. Well, where did he get that thorn in the flesh phrase? Right here in Numbers chapter 33. There's another place that we need to look at as well to identify Paul's source of information. 
And that's in Joshua chapter 23 and verse 13. Here's Joshua speaking to the people on God's behalf. It says, Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. One final scripture I want to show you is in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 6. These are the last words of David. Verse 1, for example, says, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said. And then he says some things about the Lord. And then in verse 6, he says, But the sons of Bedeal shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. Now, these are the only places in the Old Testament or anywhere in Scripture outside of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. These are the only places where a phrase thorn in the flesh or thorns in your side, pricks in your eyes, and similar statements that we've read, these are the only places where he could have gotten that from. Now, here's the question. When Paul used the phrase thorn in the flesh, with the training he had, with the things that he identifies concerning his understanding and his teaching, his education concerning the law and the prophets. Would we conclude that Paul would have to know what the example of the Old Testament or the illustration of the Old Testament was before he used the same one? And if he is using the same one, would it not indicate to us, again, because he knows what the Old Testament says, would it not indicate to us that he's talking about something very similar as what was used in the Old Testament description? Well, for me, that's an easy answer. The only reason Paul would use that phrase thorn in the flesh is because of the verses of Scripture that we just read in the Old Testament. Now, in every one of those cases, the three times, Numbers chapter 33, Joshua chapter 23, and 2 Samuel, what chapter is this? Chapter 23. Since these are the only places that it's used, it clearly identifies in all three of those Old Testament Scriptures that it's talking about people. And not things. It's talking about the annoyance that the people will be that they allow to remain. It's talking about the difficulty or the, the, the hindrance. The frustration that these people will cause to the people of Israel. Well, so if Paul's talking about a thorn in the flesh, why would we automatically assume that the thorn in the flesh was a thing? when the only basis he would have had to use that phrase that he did pertains to people, personalities. Well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 again. Let's look at some more of what he said. Verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, if thorn in the flesh means personality then what personality is he talking about well notice he identifies specifically in connection with joined to the phrase thorn in the flesh he identifies that he describes that as being the messenger of satan now folks it's important for us to realize he did not say the messenger of god so let's back up and look at the big picture a little bit here 
lest I should be exalted above measure. There was given unto me the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. Now, folks, if God wanted, didn't want Paul to experience any exaltation relative to the revelations that he had, then why did God give him the revelations? If God is trying to keep him humble in spite of the revelations that he had, why didn't God spread the revelations out among other people? See, if God's trying to keep Paul down in his attitude about himself, it would have been a whole lot easier for him to just not give him the revelations that he gave him. But are we to believe that God trying to keep Paul humble uses a messenger of Satan to do it? When did God and the devil start working hand in hand? When did God and the devil start collaborating on different outcomes or, or results? It clearly says it's the messenger of Satan. Now let's look at that word messenger for a moment. This word messenger is 188 times in the scripture. 188 times it's used in the scripture. Seven times it's used and translated as the word messenger. 181 times it's translated angel. It's the Hebrew, I mean, it's the Greek word angelos. Well, if we're talking about messenger or we're talking about angel, is that a thing or is that a person? See, Paul describes the messenger of Satan as being the thorn in the flesh. He's saying just like the sons of Belial, just like the inhabitants of Canaan were annoyances to the children of Israel if they did not completely wipe them out and did not completely drive them away from the promised land in the same way that they were annoyances, difficulties, hindrances. In the same way, Paul says that this thorn in the flesh that was given unto him, the annoyance, the annoying personality that was given to him, assigned to him to stir up trouble and to create difficulty for him, he says clearly that that was given to him by Satan. In other words, he's identifying that there's a satanic assignment against him to stop him from ministering the word of God as God would have him to do. Now notice what else he said. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Now if you want to look up that word buffet in your concordance, maybe you've got a Bible app on your phone or something like that, you'll find out that this word buffet means to deliver blow after blow. So quite literally, according to the language, if this thorn in the flesh is a sickness, then it had to be one sickness after another over and over and over and over again. One place that this word buffet is used, it's used several times throughout the New Testament. One of the places is it's talking about the waves that buffeted against the ship that Paul was on when he was on his way to Rome. Well, the, the waves that were buffeting the ship, everybody understands what that means. It doesn't mean that there was just one wave that was a big one. It means that the waves crashed over against the ship time and time and time and time again. And the, the language that Paul uses necessitates that whatever this thing was that was buffeting him was delivering blow after blow after blow, day after day after day. Not just one attack not just one blow against him, but a multitude of blows. Well, that's not what sickness does, is it? 
Sickness doesn't deliver blow after blow after blow. Sickness delivers one blow trying to take you out in one fell swoop. And so what does Paul do? Well, he's got this personality that's working against him, trying to hinder him. He talks to the Lord about it. And he asked the Lord three times to let this thing depart from him. Now, again, much of the church world would say that he's praying three times for God to heal him. And God answers, no, that this is something that you're to endure for my glory. But folks, think about this. One of the things that that blows me away and reveals something of Paul's prayer life to me is that he says that he asked the Lord three times to do away with this thing or to remove this thing from him. Like three times is a lot. Now, folks, learn something about Paul's relationship with the Lord. Paul says, I talked to the Lord about this three times. It was such an important issue for me that I I talked to him about it three whole times. Folks, I would submit to you that most Christians pray more than three times a day about things that they want. But Paul knew that you didn't have to do that. He knew that God hears you when you pray, when you pray according to his will which is praying according to his word. And he must have concluded, I'm just imagining this was his reasoning process, but you judge this for yourself. He has to be looking at this and saying, this messenger of Satan, this personality that's sent to annoy me, to hinder me, to frustrate me, is keeping me from preaching and ministering in the way that I would want to do, in the way that I believe that the Lord would have for me to do. I'm sure that there were a lot of times where Paul wound up in jail that he had no idea that he was supposed to, that, that that was part of the plan of God. The reality is if Paul had not spent the time in jail that he did, we probably would not have the letters that he wrote because most of the letters that he wrote to the church were written from jail. Well, I can certainly understand Paul's hesitancy to accept that things were going as well as they should be or that God was being glorified through his ministry in the manner that he intended for him to be. That doesn't seem too far a leap for me to take. But like I said, you judge that for yourself. So he says, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, Notice this in verse 8, that it might depart from me. Folks, if you look up again in the original Greek, this word that's translated it is literally the word he. Now, so that you don't have to just take my word for this, I'm going to read to you from Weymouth's translation, beginning in verse 7. I'll read this in verse 7 and in verse 8. And judging by the stupendous grandeur of the revelations, therefore, lest I should be overelated, There has been sent to me like the agony of impalement, Satan's angel dealing blow after blow, lest I should be over elated. And for this, three times have I besought the Lord to rid me of him. Now, folks, as we've said over and over again, a translation is only good as two things. First, the translator's knowledge or understanding of the language so that it's an accurate translation according to the language itself. But the second factor in making a good translation is 
to understand that the translators could only interpret the things of God by what they perceived and what they knew and understood of the character and the nature of God. In other words, if the translators thought that God uses sickness and disease to teach or instruct his children, then that's certainly going to come out in the way that they translate. And so certainly by the time the King James translators came along, the church has already descended into the place, the doctrine, the belief that God was using sickness from time to time to afflict his people for some higher purpose. But is that the way God is? The Bible says the only thing God uses to instruct us, to chastise us, to discipline us, is the Word of God. Not adversity, not circumstance, and certainly not sickness and disease. So Weymouth, and Weymouth's not the only one. Rotherham says pretty much the same thing. He uses a little, little different language, but he identifies the messenger of Satan as a personality. Now there are some things that we need to, well, let's go a little bit further before I get ahead of myself. Look back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 from the King James translation again. Verse 8, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that he might depart from me. King James says it, but it's literally a personal pronoun. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, folks, notice where he says that the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. You can't find a place in the Bible where grace is applied to the physical body. It doesn't exist. The grace of God has always talked about the impact, always talked about related to the impact upon the heart, the inward man, the spirit of man. There's never a place where Jesus ministered grace to somebody to heal their bodies. So with a little basic understanding, a little basic knowledge of what grace is and what grace is for, knowing that it's always a spiritual answer, a spiritual solution, but never used in connection with the physical body. That when Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, that by definition means that this thing that Paul is praying to leave him cannot be sickness or disease. It cannot be sickness or disease. By definition of the language itself, it's impossible. So what is he telling him? When the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, grace is among other things staying power. So when the Lord says my grace is sufficient for you, he's saying, Paul, this is how it works. Paul's the one that wrote to the church, I'm sure after this point in time, but Paul's the one that wrote to the church that they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I wonder how he learned that. Did that come as revelation to him from the Lord? Did the Lord appear to him one day and say, Paul, I need you to know something. They that, love, that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Or do you think maybe he found that out by his own life? 
Now, there's something else you need to understand. And maybe Paul didn't know this himself until this situation took place in his life. We're not redeemed from persecution. We are redeemed from sickness and disease. But we're not redeemed from persecution. And so if they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, which is the reason why most people aren't persecuted, by the way. They don't live a life that brings others under conviction. But when the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, he's simply telling Paul, what you have on the inside of you, the life of God that you have on the inside of you, is more than adequate to put up with the annoyances of this, met- this messenger of Satan. But now I want you to go a little bit further with me. Notice what Paul said after the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says then, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. The word infirmities is the word weakness, not sickness. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. That's not sickness. In reproaches, that, those are insults. In necessities, that means not having enough. Basic needs of life sometimes not being met. In persecutions, we know what persecutions are. In distresses or crises for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm not strong. Notice two things about this. One is about the only thing Paul doesn't mention that he has to deal with is sickness. Now, some people would translate infirmities to be sickness. But you can tell from the context that that's not what he's talking about. Why would he compare sicknesses with insults? Why would he compare sickness with not having enough to eat or drink on occasion? Because of his work in serving the Lord. Why would he mention sickness in connection with reproaches? And why would he mention sickness in connection with persecutions? Folks, those are not apples to compare with apples. Those are not things that you put together in the same sentence. But if we understand that he's talking about weakness, his own physical inability to overcome the persecutions that he's dealing with, then he's going to have to rely on the strength of God to get him through. Now, notice what he says. He says, most gladly will I therefore glory in these things, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And I pulled two phrases out. To connect them together. But notice he says, For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now answer me this. Again, I'm working from the premise that so much of the church world believes that Paul's thorn in the flesh was sickness and disease. And some people have gone to great lengths to talk about the terrible eye disease that he had and so forth. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But when Paul says, I've found the secret to recognize my own weakness my own inadequacies regarding persecutions. He says, I've found the secret, and that is to let the power of Christ rest upon me. For when I am weak in comparison to the persecutions, then am I strong. If God did not relieve him of this terrible eye disease or whatever sickness and disease the church world preaches that it had, if God is not relieving him, then how could the power of Christ rest upon him? 
if the power of Christ is resting upon him, it's resting upon him to overcome the situations that he's encountering. And how could he say I'm strong if the power of Christ that's upon him doesn't alleviate the problem? He'd have to say I'm hopeful that the power of Christ will deliver you but that certainly hadn't been the case for me. But that's not what he says. He says relying on the grace of God the spiritual strength to endure whatever comes against him. He said that's what activates the power of God to make me strong when it seems that I'm weak. Do you understand what I'm saying? Turn back with me to Galatians chapter 4. Here's another thing that the proponents of Paul's terrible sickness claim Verse 13, Paul says, You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. We'll come back and talk about this, but I want you to see the context. And my temptation, the word temptation is the word test, trial, or affliction. It's talking about a condition. And my temptation which was in my flesh you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness that you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, we don't want to go any further because he's talking about something unrelated to Paul's thorn. So let's just stick with what he said. Notice he said, you know that how infir through infirmity of the flesh I preached to you at the first. Why would he say at the first? See, when he says, I preach to you through infirmity, meaning weakness of the flesh, at the first, he's indicating that something was different about the first time he saw them and other times that he saw them. Otherwise, he would have said, you know how the, through the infirmity of the flesh I preach and minister the gospel. But that's not what he said. He said there was something that took place or something that he experienced the first time he was with them that was different and unique. Well, what was that? If we could only find out what the circumstances were about Paul's first visit to the Galatians, then we'd have some clue. We'd have some understanding of these things that he's speaking of. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We just happen to have the record of what took place the first time Paul went into the region of Galatia. Beginning in verse 1, and it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake. This is their first missionary journey. They went into the synagogues of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their mind evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave grace which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derbe, 
cities of Lyconia and unto the region that lieth round about. Now, folks, if you've got a map in your Bible or your Bible out, you'll find out that the cities of Lystra and Derby are right smack dab in the region that's identified and, and called Galatia. So when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, he's writing to those that live in Lystra. He's writing to those that live in Derby. He's writing to those that live in Iconium. It was a letter that was supposed to be passed around, probably it was recopied many times, and passed around between all the churches because Paul's message was the same for each one. So they had to flee to Lystra and Derby. Here's the persecution. Here's the trouble that stirred up against Paul that he talks to the Lord about. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who, steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now let me make a couple of comments here before I get away from it. I don't want to forget this by going a little bit too far. When Paul says to, to the Corinthians... I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. There are two schools of thought about where Paul got this thorn in the flesh. Again, the eye disease that many in church circles claim that he had. And the, the issue really becomes this. At what point in the story that the Bible gives us about Paul in his life, at what point did he have these revelations that stirred up this messenger of Satan? It had to be in one of two places. It either had to be when Paul saw Jesus and was blinded by the light on the road to Damascus, or it had to be when he went in to Arabia before he started the bulk of the important part of his ministry. Because by the time he comes back and starts his first missionary journey, he is well-versed, well-equipped, and well-taught by the revelations that God has given him about who we are in Christ. He doesn't have to go back the second or the third time to these places and correct doctrine or amend what he said before by saying, I've had another vision since then. Let me tell you what I was wrong about before and what, I'm, what it's really about the second time. So when he writes these things to the churches, he's already received the revelation, the gospel that he says the world will be judged by. That means by the time Acts chapter 14 comes along, Paul has had to have already had those revelations. Which means if he has an eye disease, it's already in evidence in his life. Are you with me? Now here's the question. If Paul didn't let the thorn in the flesh, again what some claim to be this terrible eye disease with pus running out of his eyes and all this kind of stuff, if he didn't let that keep him from preaching the gospel of healing, why should we? Now, I don't for a minute believe that he had an eye disease. And I don't believe for a minute that people would get healed if he had the eye disease. Because what's he going to preach? God wants to heal you but not me? Who's that going to persuade? What's he supposed to say? God is a good and loving father. He just won't heal me. Folks, I would submit to you if that was the case and if that was what Paul intended to preach, he'd be better off letting somebody else in his company do the preaching on healing. 
And furthermore, in Acts chapter 19, where it talks about God working special miracles by the hands of Paul, verse 19, chapter 19, verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were taken unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. And when they were laid upon the sick, the sickness departed from their bodies, uh, left their bodies, and the evil spirits went out of them. Who in the world wants a pus-covered handkerchief or apron to lay on their sick body? It would seem to me that people would burn those things rather than use them. It's ridiculous what the church has held on to for thousands of years, or over a thousand years at least. All right, let's go back to Acts chapter 14. The man is healed, the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet, and he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, or Zeus, and Paul Mercurius, Mercurius, or Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce retained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul drew him out of the city supposing that he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. So the first time Paul was in Galatia, he preached in two cities, Antioch and Iconium. But the Jews that refused to believe in Jesus, refused to believe the things that Paul taught and preached, they stirred up the people to bring bodily harm against them. And they were warned, they found out something about the plans, and so they fled from Lystra and Iconium. I'm sorry, they fled from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra and Derby, cities in Galatia. While they were there, they got the crippled guy healed by preaching the gospel. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the gospel that the Holy Ghost gave us record of had to include the healing of the body. Because if they'd been preaching on water baptism, they may have stirred faith in the hearts of the people to be baptized in water, but not healed. They had to have been preaching healing. And that's what Paul and the Holy Ghost call the gospel. But while they were there, even though they'd done these great things, people came from Antioch and Iconium. When they couldn't find them in their own cities, they found out that they had gone to Lystra and Derby, or Lystra at least. 
Then they came and stoned Paul and left him for dead. Now, do you believe that they left him at the point of death? What would have been the point in them coming down to, to stone him if they were going to leave him at the point of death or the edge of death? I believe what the Bible says they left him for dead. I believe that they left him dead. I believe that God raised him up. And the only reason that I say this is because the Jews don't mess around with this kind of stuff. Stephen's a good example. They stoned Stephen and didn't bring him to the point of death. They made sure that he was dead. Thus becoming probably the first martyr of the church. So when these guys came down, these are professional stoners. When they came down to where Paul was, I believe that they did due diligence. They checked him out. They made sure that he was dead so that they'd never have to deal with him again. But when the believers gathered around him and began to pray, life came back into him, and he went back to the same two cities that he had just come out of. First he went to Derby. And then after that, he went back to Iconium and Antioch. Now, when the Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium and returned to their cities, what was the story that they told? Well, it had to have been, we found this guy and we did away with him. We don't have to worry about him ever again. And then a short time later, whether it was days, whether it was even a week later, I don't tend to think that it was that long, but however long it was, he comes back walking into their town through their city gates and everybody looks at the people that went down to Stoney and said, I thought you said he was dead. They said, we thought he was dead too. Now, what would Paul have looked like after having been stoned either dead or to the point of death? You ever seen somebody come out of one of these heavyweight fights? Or the, these boxing matches for the title or something similar to that? Man, there's a lot of times these guys are just swollen up and grotesque looking in their faces just from taking blows with gloves on. I wonder what it would look like if you took those same blows with rocks or stones. I wonder if maybe Paul's face was puffed up, he was injured to such a degree, or marked as if he was injured to such a degree that would qualify for Paul saying, you remember how I preached to you through the infirmity or weakness of the flesh when I was with you the first time. See, folks, the Bible is answering what happened the first time Paul was there. He was stoned. First time he came to Antioch and Iconium, he had great results. Many people received the Lord. But then they had to flee because of the persecution, the attack that was planned against them. And it took them a while, but those same people that wanted to attack him in the cities of Antioch and Iconium finally found him in Lystra. Now, how would that fit what he said to the Galatians? Well, the first thing he said to the Galatians that we read in, in chapter 4, I think it was verse 13, he said, You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. Meaning whatever the condition was when he first went wasn't the condition that he was in at the time that he wrote the letter. So whether that was sickness or disease or whether it was the results of being stoned, it wasn't a permanent condition. And then he said, where is the blessedness that you spoke of? In other words, why are you thinking different about me now? And the letter that he wrote to the Galatians was after the Jews had come from Jerusalem 
and try to turn them away from simply believing in what Jesus had done for us and sacrificed himself for us to incorporating the law of Moses back into their worship. Paul gets pretty serious with them. In chapter 3, he calls them idiots. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, the word foolish there means idiotic. He said, who has bewitched you and turned you away from the faith in the Lord Jesus that brought you into the family of God to begin with? So then when he talks about in chapter 4, he said, where is the blessedness that you spoke of? In other words, why are you treating me different now than you treated me when I came back to you in this infirmity of the flesh or after having been stoned? Then he describes what blessedness he's talking about. He said, I bear you record that you would have given me your own eyes. Now, folks, there's one of two ways that you can look at that, and, and only one of two ways. One is they literally intended or literally would have been willing to run their thumb up behind their eye and pop out their eyeball and give it to Paul. I don't think that was the one. Or he could be using a figure of speech saying that they cared so much for him and showed so much care and concern for him that if it had been possible, they would have let him have their own eyes, which indicates that it was a problem with his eyes. Now, this is the place where a lot of the church world will go to say that Paul had this eye disease or ophthalmia or whatever they say that he had. Again, if that were the case, then it had to be temporary because Paul identifies or differentiates between the first and, the, and later times that he was with them. But if, if he's speaking figuratively, then that figure of speech that he uses, everybody would understand that they were showing their love and their concern for him to such a degree that they'd be willing to do, give him whatever was ailing him and take it upon themselves in his place. It would be the equivalent of saying, I'd give my right arm to help that guy. Now, it's only one of those two things. Can't be both. It's one or the other. I believe that when Paul said, you showed enough care and concern for me, even to the point of being willing to give me your, your own eyes, I believe that must be a reference or an indication that the stoning left Paul in such condition that he was having trouble seeing. And again, some of these guys coming out of these title fights are oftentimes so swollen up that one eye, maybe not both, but one eye is closed completely and will remain so until the swelling goes down. Which way was it for Paul? With having said all of these things, folks, there's only one thing that really fits each and every part of this. And that is the people of Galatia witnessed his stoning, witnessed his being raised from the dead, witnessed the marks. He said himself, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord. The stripes that he took upon his back as a part of persecution, those scars remained. It's not unlikely or unusual to think that the scars that he was left with after the stoning and being raised from the dead would have been visible on his face as well. And that fits a whole lot better 
than somebody coming up and theorizing that Paul had some terrible eye disease that kept him humble before the Lord. Folks, that just does not fit. Finally, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. I have another question. Here's my question. Can we find, there are all kinds of people in the modern day church that that claim that they've asked God for healing and God has said no to them for some hidden purpose or to teach them or to deepen their piety, whatever in the world that's supposed to mean. There's a lot, a lot of people in the body of Christ that for whatever reason have accepted as truth that God doesn't want to heal them. But here's the question. If that's the way God operates, and Jesus, who's the one that said, he that has seen me has seen the Father, if we can't find evidence of Jesus doing the same thing in his earthly ministry, then it would be impossible for us to scripturally adopt a doctrine that says that God's not willing to heal everybody. Where did Jesus ever turn anybody away that came to him for healing? There were times and situations, we've got several cases in Jesus' ministry where Jesus had to tweak their faith, where he had to challenge their faith, where he had to tell them something so that they'd have faith for healing, just like in Matthew chapter 8 with the leper. But you can't find any place where Jesus said, no, it's the will of God for you to stay sick. Again, since Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. If Jesus didn't do it when he was here on the earth, and that's really the way that God works, then Jesus was an unfaithful representation of who God is and how he operates. Now, I'm not willing to say that, are you? Never did Jesus deny somebody healing for their body that came to him. Therefore, it would be not only improper, but heresy for somebody to claim that that's what he's doing now or claim that that God is working that way in people's lives now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Paul's thorn was simply what he said. It was persecution, and it hindered him. It held him back. It created distress in his life. But he got victory over it. And the victory that he got over the persecution was to rely on the strength and the power of God to establish him, to keep him, to protect him all throughout the rest of his life. Doesn't mean he wasn't persecuted again, but he found the secret weapon. And I believe it's the same thing that he's talking about when he wrote to the Philippians. He said, I know how to have plenty and I know how not to have enough. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How does Christ strengthen us? Well, he strengthens our spirit, strengthens us spiritually by his grace. But as we said before, never is the grace of God used in connection with physical healing. Never, ever, ever. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good. Thank God healing is good. It's always good and it can only be good. Which means sickness can never be good. Because Jesus healed all that were oppressed of the devil. Sickness is satanic oppression. Healing is the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself to us through your word. We thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that healing is available for all, that we all have the opportunity to extend our faith to you to receive anything and everything Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. And even as your word says, Lord, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, we are healed. So we declare our healing tonight in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that the prayer of faith has healed us and that you are raising us up. We thank you that the word is working mightily in us and that heaven and earth may pass away, but your word never fails. So again, Lord, we declare healing by the blood of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, we take hold of that and appropriate it for ourselves. Lord, it's so good to know your character and your nature. To know that you never leave us or forsake us. To know that you will never withhold any good thing from us. And thank God healing is a good thing. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us, folks. Amen. Let's start in Matthew chapter 8 tonight. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The greatest hindrance to people receiving healing in their bodies 